you have your Bible, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. This will be the last of our messages out of 1 Peter. And all God's people said. <clears throat> uh, I'm sure everybody remembers this. Actually, if you remember this, get a hobby. But this is the first passage of Scripture that I preached as pastor here. I preached two messages, and we're going to do it all in one day today, so buckle up. I'm just kidding. Uh, but this is, and, and, and I love this passage because it's a great reminder that my primary mission when I get up here on Sunday morning is to preach to my most difficult church member. Uh, it's also to preach to my most difficult, most challenging, problematic staff member. Because I'm preaching to me. I want to make clear that every time that I've come and preached at you, God has already taken this message and pounded me pretty good with it. He's got the old uh, tender, everybody, anybody remember, I don't know if they even use these anymore, the tenderizing hammer. I hadn't seen one of those. April must just be, all her, she cooks tender stuff anyways, but my mom had this grisly looking metal hammer with like these little spiky things on one side of it. And that's what I feel like every time I'm studying to preach. I'm like, Lord, you got to just take, give me five minutes and not hit me with that hammer while I'm trying to work on this. So I want you to hear from my heart, and I mean this with all sincerity, I'm working through these things as God gives them to me to work through to preach to you. Now, there's specifics in this message today that speak directly to me as the pastor, to our pastoral staff, to our elders. There's some general things in here speaking to leaders, uh, not specifically to one specific office, but just things that leaders ought to know. And then there's things in here that speak to us as congregants, as church members. Um, I've, I've put this simple title on here, Callings and Conclusions, because I, wanna, I want you to see two groups that he's talking to, two things that he's doing in there, and then kind of the, the close will be uh, what to do with it, or, or how, do we, how, do we, how do we reconcile all of the things that he tells us to do here. So I want us to take a close look at the close of Peter's first letter, and I want to look at this as an opportunity to think of this passage of Scripture as being written specifically to us modern day, because I think there's a, a, a large amount of stuff that we can get out of this for today, right now, in, in, in the world we live in, in the context in which we find ourselves. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage, not going to have you stand, but I'm going to go through here and I'm going to get, get three points that I want to show you, three little uh, passages out of this primary passage of verses 1 through 11. And the first thing I want you to see here is that there's a plea to pastors. There's a plea to pastors. Uh, Peter issues a very challenging uh, edict command to pastors, to men who have been put in authority. Uh, and he uses this word exhort. He says, I exhort the elders among you. And that word exhort is parakaleo in the Greek, and it means to beseech. It, it's, a, it's an action word. It means uh, you got to see it as more than just uh, a rule written on a placard somewhere. You ever seen that sign that says, uh, no food or drink? That's not an exhortation. That's not exhorting. Uh, exhorting is a physical activity. It's, it's something that he's, he's pleading, begging. There's, 
There's emotion and, and, and physicality even in this word. It's a very powerful, moving word that he's using, and he uses it with intention because he's not just asking you to do this. He's begging, pleading. He's commanding you to do this under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And then he uses this word elders. And he not only says elder, but he says, uh, uh, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ. That word elder is presbyteros. And it speaks to the, the shepherd or the pastor, the overseer. It's the same word we find later in verse 5. And he's speaking primarily to the office of pastor. Now, again, there's, there's shrapnel that comes from that. All right, he's speaking also in our context with our polity here at Westmobile. He would be speaking to the staff and the elders. But there's also in a general sense that he's speaking to those who are uh, more mature in the faith. Um, those that have got a little snow on the roof, you know who you are. Some of you have, have been de-roofed. <laughs> My day's coming, don't worry. But I want you to think about this. Peter writes this letter. He writes this letter and sends it out to these churches in the New Testament context. Severe persecution. Remember, he talks a lot about persecution and suffering. Why? Because that's his audience. That's, that's who he's writing to. So he writes this letter, and, and can you just imagine that you're like the, you're the pastor of the Second Baptist Church of Bug Tussle in the outskirts of Jerusalem, and you're scuffling and struggling. You're just trying to get by, and man, you don't know if tomorrow's going to be, they're going to throw me in jail, they're going to come and kill me, they're going to shut the church down, much like it is in a lot of contexts now in China, in uh, Northern Africa, and a lot of different places in this world where you can't have a church service like we have now without having to have people guard the doors because the authorities may come in. So they read this letter, they get this letter, and they've read through this whole thing, suffering, yes, and, and we need to get better at this, and yes, and, and all these other commands. And then they read this in the close of the letter. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Fellow elder. What does that imply? What does the word fellow imply there? It implies partnership, right? So he's writing this letter to these guys who look to Peter as almost a, a borderline deity. They hear the, they've heard the stories of Peter. They know that he walked with the Lord. They know that he's, he's been uh, undergoing all this stuff and this, this, these things that he's accomplished. And he writes this letter to them and he calls them a fellow elder. He's calling them like a fellow pastor. I still feel weird when I go to the minister's meetings on Mondays. I'm rubbing shoulders with some guys who have been preaching longer than I've been breathing. I'm talking to some guys who have been down more roads than I hope I ever have to go down in pastoral ministry. I don't feel comfortable cons considering myself a fellow pastor with some of these guys. And yet the apostle Peter considers me a fellow elder. Can you imagine with all that's going on in the original context of this letter that they hear this, can you imagine how encouraged they have to be when they hear that Peter refers to them as a fellow elder? They're wearing this title, and he's saying, you're wearing the same title that I wear, and we are in this together. Tying these local pastors to himself, to his experiences serving Christ, and ultimately to the fact that we will share in the glory of the revealing of Christ should be all the motivation that any, any pastor would ever need. I'll be honest with you, if I was one of them, I think I would take this letter out and I would read the first verse of chapter 5 every morning. Every morning before I drank my, whatever it was, I, I don't know if they had coffee back then, but whatever it was they drank first thing in the morning, 
I would read that letter and remind myself that Peter considers me a partner in kingdom work. And for us today, we need to understand that Peter considers us a partner in kingdom work. And one step above that, listen, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing enough that Peter would call me a fellow elder, but the fact that Jesus Christ calls me an heir of God and a co-heir with him is almost more than my little pea brain can hold on to. And we need these reminders because sometimes it's hard to not stop leading well. It's, it's hard not to just want to put the brakes on. It's, it's, it's always said that er, almost every pastor in America wants to quit every Monday morning. So it's not, it's not overwhelming to think about how many quit. It's ridiculously overwhelming to think of how many decide not to quit. They're discouraged. They're tired. They feel like they've labored in vain sometimes. I told you that sometimes it feels like being a preacher is like being a professional bass fisherman that never catches anything. You just stand on the boat just slinging every lure you got all the time. So it, it's, it's hard to understand the kind of weight and, and pressure that these guys are under. And a lot of them are in, in much more difficult context than what I'm in. I, I, I'm telling you, I, I feel like Kramer from Seinfeld. I just kind of fall backwards into... I, I'm a, I'm a turtle on a fence post. But some of these guys are in very difficult, challenging circumstances, and they need to be reminded that Peter considers them a fellow elder and Christ considers them a co-heir. Because I think it's easy for us to stop leading well when we start worrying more about politics, popularity, or public opinion than we do about how well we're representing Jesus. Which is, again, why most of us need to separate ourselves from social media. We need, to, we need to, there's nothing, social media is not evil, by the way, y'all know that. Just like money's not evil. People say, oh, money's the root of all evil. No, it's not. Money's nothing. Money's a piece of paper that somebody said had worth. The love of money is the root of all evil. Why? Because you make it an idol. Just like popularity or your political stance or whatever, you make those things your idol and they're going to be a problem. We need to separate ourselves from that because if we start letting those things dictate what we do here, then we have already failed before we've ever got in the game. He uses the word shepherd in verse 2. He says, shepherd God's flock among you. That shepherd is poimahino. Poimahino, sorry. Poimahino. And it's a supervisory word. It's, a, it's an overseer. It's, it's, it's a, a manager, if you will. But it's also a caretaker. And by saying shepherd the flock of God, he reminds us that we are under shepherds of the great shepherd. That's what he calls him in Hebrews 13, 20. The good shepherd in John 10, 11. And we are the under shepherds of the great shepherd. When I was in the other office, I was the under shepherd of an under shepherd. And that was stressful enough. Amen? I need to get an amen. Where's, where's, I need to get at least two amens over here. But it's stressful enough. Then you go to this. I, ha I was talking to somebody recently, and, and I'm, I, they're young in ministry, and I know there's probably a church that's going to be reaching out to them. And so I told them, I said, hey, I'm not telling you what to do. I'll support you either way, but I'm just telling you the weight is different. It's not something that I could explain. I didn't realize how weighty it was until I was actually in there. I mean, like I remember when the search committee came to me, I was overjoyed. I was tickled. I was nervous about the vote. <laughs> and then they voted me in, and I was more nervous about the vote. I, part of me wanted to come in here and tell some of y'all to change your vote. But I didn't really fully grasp it until I was sitting in there one day. And nothing had specifically happened. I mean, all the COVID stuff was already starting to brew. And we're, you know, we could, you know, it wasn't raining yet, but we could see the clouds. You know what I mean? 
And then it just kind of dawned on me, hey, you're the guy. Now, thankfully, we, I, we have an amazing church structure here, so I have elders to help me, and I have an amazing staff. I have the best staff to help me, but ultimately, the decision lands in that office, and I'm sitting in that chair, and it, it's a weight. It's a heaviness. Why? Because I'm an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. I wrote three statements here, and I want to read them to you. I want to make sure that we get these. One is to the overseer. To oversee a flock, we must protect it, tend it, lead it, and feed it. We must protect it, tend it, lead it, and feed it. That's why I consider this time so sacred. Because this is my opportunity every Sunday to feed the sheep. The second statement, the flock's job isn't to grow the shepherd, it's the shepherd's job to grow the flock. I'm going, to, I'm going to speak to that a little bit more later when we're talking about platform. But suffice to say, your job is not to grow me. My job is to grow you. Not only numerically, but mostly personally, spiritually. That's why we put so much into our discipleship program. That's why we uh, count on so much our grow group leaders and we appreciate them. Uh, our deacons, our elders, our staff, all of those people are dedicated to try to help grow our flock spiritually and numerically. I tell people this all the time when I'm inviting them to come or if they come and visit and I tell them, look, and by the way, I'll say this, if you're visiting here today and you just hate this, I will try to help you find a good church. If this is not your jam, if you want different music or somebody with more sense preaching, I will try to help you find somewhere because I don't get paid on commission. I don't get paid on commission. The elders are not looking and going, well, you know, if you get five more people, you get another 10%. What? No. Thank the Lord I don't. Because then I don't have to worry about it. My worry is not trying to bring people in. My worry is trying to get the gospel to everybody that I can. Every person that comes in this room, every person that watches us online, every person that I get to run into out in the community, I'm trying to get them to gospel. Why? Because I'm trying to grow a flock. And I'm trying to get you to do the same thing, to take the gospel to the grocery store, to the gas station, to your workplace, to your home, to the restaurant and the waitress that you interact with. Get them the gospel. Why? So they'll grow the church and I'll get paid more? No, I couldn't care less about that. So you will grow. You grow when you start being a disciple maker, when you start putting feats to your prayers, when you start putting activity to your desires. Man, I really wish people knew Jesus. Do something about it. It will grow you. I mean, you'll sense enormous growth when you start just giving in to what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. Now, I will say this. You are growing me. Now, part of that is because I've been here for a good while. So there's already relationships that have developed. There's discipleship that was taking place before I changed jobs. And some of you men are still discipling me even now. Some of you ladies are, are helping to disciple me even now. You're encouragers. You're prayer warriors. You're godly examples. You're, you've got a good track record that I can look at and be kind of envious of in a way to say, man, I want people to think of me the way they think of this person or that person. So some of you are growing the flock, but that's not the primary relationship we have. My job is to make sure that I'm growing the flock of God that he has entrusted me with. The third thing, the flock should look out for the shepherd as he looks out for the flock. 
There are going to be some diff- difficult things to talk about today because they sound very self-serving. And you know God's got a sense of humor because this is where we are in our study of First Peter and it's Pastor Appreciation Month and it looks like I'm angling. I just got to tell you the truth, I'm not. And you just got to trust me. God has put me here as the under-shepherd of the great shepherd, and I'm watching out for your souls. I'm going to give an account, by the way. You're talking about something that will keep you up at night? 1,253, is that right, Julie? 1,253 resident members that I'm going to give an account for. Some of them the CIA can't find. We're running about 265, 270 average on Sunday morning. Every one of those... I'm going to give an account for. In return, I need you to look out for me. When you hear negative things going on, I expect not just deacons and elders, not just staff members and grow group leaders, I expect church members to nip that in the bud. And again, not because it's about me, but because it's about the church that God has entrusted to me. Brian Croft is a former pastor who, uh, he was doing this other ministry where he ministers to pastors, encourages and trains, and now he's doing that uh, full time. But in one of his books, I read this statement. I thought it was really apropos. A good shepherd has got to smell like sheep. A good shepherd has got to smell like sheep. A good shepherd doesn't just show up and, and do his thing on Sunday morning and leave and never talk to anybody, never interact with anybody, never do things with people, never know about their lives, never interact with them. But I'm going to be honest with you, it's a lot easier to smell like sheep when the sheep don't have fangs. Sheep bite. I have seen it. (laughs) So if you won't bite, I will be more comfortable smelling like sheep. But the weight of the responsibility is one that is heavy, and it always uh, kind of, when we studied Acts with the college group, it's one of my favorite studies. Listen to what he says in Acts 20.28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That's weighty. That's weighty. Let's say that Sherry calls me up and, and Sherry says, Hey, Brother Kevin, I'm going out of town. The whole family's going to be gone. Can you, can you watch our car for us? And I'm like, Okay, well, what kind of car is it? And she said, It's a brown Hornet, 1983 rust brown Hornet. I got it. <laughs> I'll watch it. Don't worry about it. Right? Now, imagine that same scenario, and I said, what kind of car is it? She said, it's a brand new 2021 bright yellow Lamborghini. I'm probably going to sleep in it with a gun in my hand. I may even hire an off-duty police officer just to drive circles around it the whole weekend. Why? Because I'm going to be more nervous about guarding a Lamborghini than I'm a brown hornet. Listen to me, church. Woo, I'm about to have a spell. Listen to what he says. To shepherd the church of God. That's valuable enough. But then he gives this this caveat, which he purchased with his own blood. That's a whole lot more valuable than a Lamborghini. 
How much more should I be concerned about overseeing, watching after the church of God that he has entrusted under my care that was purchased with his own blood? Now here's, I'm going to make this statement about pastors. The pastor who only wants to grow his platform or wealth is not an under-shepherd at all, only a hired hand. And I've seen that too. God forgive them. But I want you to hear the second part. The church that doesn't respect and honor their pastor's leadership only sees him as a hired hand rather than an under-shepherd. Let me tell you something. I know this sounds very self-serving. I'm not preaching this for me. I'm preaching this because this is where we are in the book. I've seen situations where you had somebody who was dedicated and sold out, and, and he, I mean, a powerful man of God, and he got treated like a hired hand to the point that he could not shepherd. And I will say, just like I said, a pastor who's only trying to grow his platform, God forgive him. A church that beats down a shepherd and turns him into a hired hand, God forgive them. I promise you, a church needs a shepherd. They don't need a hired hand. Why? How do you know that, Brother Kevin? You sound very confident in that. Well, I don't know. Let's see what Jesus said about it. Look at John 10, verses 12 and 13. He says, The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I want you to hear me this morning, church. You need a shepherd. Because the wolf is out there, and the wolf is coming. And you better hope you ain't hired a hired hand, because he's going to book as soon as that wolf starts to growl. You better make sure you've got a shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. So there's the plea to pastors. The second thing, a call to congregations. Look at verses 5 through 9. Peter issues a call in in these verses. He gives a challenge and a caution in this call. The challenge is to live with humility. And it's not just made toward one specific group, but rather to young, old, pastor, flock. We even get a glimpse of it in verse 4 when he reminds the under-shepherds that the great shepherd is coming back. I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to be honest with you. It never leaves my mind for more than a minute that as the under-shepherd, one day I'm going to give an account to the great shepherd for what I did with the flock he entrusted to me. That is a very humbling thought, and I need it. I lean in on it all the time. Because, see, humility is not an act. It's not a show. It's actually a frame of mind. Look at this, um, this verse 6. Well, verse 5, clothe yourself, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Uh, that could also be translated as tie humility around you. In other words, make humility what people see. That word humility is a Greek word, tapanaphrosuno. Uh, sorry, tapanaphrosune. And it means humbleness of mind. Listen, don't, don't miss this. Humility is not being humble. Humility is a state of mind. It's a, it's a way of life. It's a condition of your existence. That's the only way you can live with humility is if it's a, a, a mindset. It's, it's programmed into the hard drive. The mainframe won't do anything without operating through humility. That's how it's got to work. Humility is not thinking of yourself, uh, thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's Rick Warren. Now, that's, it's funny to me that Rick Warren has that quote, but it often gets attributed to C.S. Lewis. 
Isn't that, isn't that weird? Ken, it gives me a, I sleep better at night knowing that one thing that I don't have to worry about is that nobody is ever going to confuse something that C.S. Lewis said with, with a quote of mine, and they're never going to think that I said something and try to attribute it to C.S. Lewis. Unless C.S. Lewis is from a much more rural part of the country than what I think he was from, I don't think me and him are going to speak the same language. But it's interesting that those two, those two men have those quotes attributed to them. So I tried to figure that out. I went and found, I said, well, what did C.S. Lewis say about it? Because I'm intrigued. If C.S. Lewis didn't say that, which is a great, it's a great way to understand it, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. What did C.S. Lewis say? I look, look in mere Christianity, and when he's talking about this truly humble person, this person with humility as a state of mind, this is what he says. He will not be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all. You see why they get confused? Because they have the same heartbeat in those two sentences. Why do they have the same heartbeat? Look at me, because they got the same Holy Spirit. It's not a mystery. It's not, it's not parallel thinking. No, it's the same Holy Spirit working in both of these men to try to give information to people, anybody who will read and listen and understand that, that humility has got to be a frame of mind, not just something you act like. Humility is not, oh, shucks, you know. No, humility is a, is a frame of being. It's thinking about others. It's thinking about the mission of God and not thinking about how it impacts me. And I'm confident of that. Why? Because look at what Jesus said. I, I'm going to keep going back to the same thing. If you're trying to figure out how to be a man, let's look at what it looked like when God did it. That's what Rick says, right? Luke 14, 11, Jesus said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted pretty clear in verse 7 Peter says casting all your cares on him because he cares about you he gives us two things in that challenge or two important things to use as we face that challenge one that we should all desire to give God our burdens and two he wants us to do just that did you catch that Be a little transparent here. Probably hurt somebody's feelings. I know Neil's shocked by that. Shocked. I don't mind you casting your burdens on me. It's part of what I'm here for. You want to come talk? You want to unload? You want to share some things? I'm here for it, okay? And I will do my best to help you. I will do my best to try to give you some good biblical advice, to give you some passages of Scripture to read to try to help you. I've been doing that since I came to Christ. But if you really want your, your cares, if you really want that weight to come off, you really want to cast, throw your cares, give them to him. I love the old preacherism. I don't know who said it first or where I heard it first, but uh, when you go to bed at night, give all your worries, worries to God, he'll be up anyway. That's good. I don't know who said it, but that's pretty smart. That's a good day. Here's the problem, John. Every morning we do that at night and we wake up in the morning and want to give them back. All right, Lord, remember all them things I gave you last night before I went to bed? Come on, hand them here. Put them on and you start walking around with them. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Listen to what the psalmist said, Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And then we see the caution in verse 8. 
He says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. We have a, a common opponent in this thing called life, and listen, he is a formidable opponent. I've experienced spiritual warfare, uh, have experienced it recently. And it's a real thing. So he reminds the reader to be sober-minded. Why? Because we have an adversary who wants to destroy us. This is the third warning he gives of this kind. In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, With your minds ready for action, be sober-minded. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Why, why does he say it three times? Because we have a formidable adversary who wants to do what? Wants to devour us. Uh, this, this Greek word is to gulp down, to drown, to swallow up. So what he's saying is that he will gulp you down, drown you under, swallow you whole, or whatever it takes to get you out of the fight. So what do we do? How, how do we? We don't let him. We make our mind up that we're going to stand against whatever he throws at us. How do we do that? Look, I'm glad you asked. Look at James 4, 7 through 10. I'm not going to read all of it, but he says, submit to God. How do we resist the devil? How do we fight the one who's trying to devour us, who's trying to engulf us, swallow us whole? We submit to God and we resist the devil. And if we do those two things, he's going to leave. He will leave you alone if you will submit to God and resist the devil. Gene, I've been, I've been, I did went the whole first service and I didn't share it. I wasn't going to share it, but now I really feel like the Lord has impressed me to share it. Later, this sounds like I'm losing my marbles, and I know that, but it's okay. They weren't that good of marbles anyway. Laying in bed one night last week, I can't remember when it was, laying in bed. And you know how you wake up from a dream and you realize you were dreaming? This wasn't that. This was, I was out, dead, unconscious, and then boom, I was awake. And I had this sense of terror. I mean terror. And I'm laying on my side, and I, I kind of turn my head just a little bit and look. There's a little bit of light coming in the doorway, and I see this, this image, this shadow, this form standing. I mean, I, I felt like I could reach out and touch it, but I, I wasn't going to do that. And I, the bed was shaking, and I was like, why is the bed shaking? Then I realized it was me, that I was trembling. I was so terrified that I was laying there, and I couldn't move. I just laid there and was just shaking, vibrating. So what do you do? That's why Psalm 1911 11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart, something I not sin against you. I started reciting scripture. <laughs> Everything I could think of. I've not been given a fear, but a sound mind. And, and I started, you know, uh, resist the, submit to God, resist the devil. He will flee from you. I mean, I just started going through all these scriptures. Like I didn't think you did John 3, 16. I mean, I just started everything I could think of. And I said, Lord, take this, take whatever's going on now. This is spiritual warfare. God, take it, end it. Because I'm powerless without you. If somebody came in my house, a person, they're going to get all I got. They may still get me. They may still get to my family, but it'll be over my cold, dead body before they do. But spiritual warfare is not like that, church. If I had gotten out of that bed and tried to bow up at whatever that was, he probably would have, sp he probably would have spiked me like a volleyball. 
So what do I do? I go to where the real power is. I go to God's word. I go to what God has called us to use. Listen to what Ephesians 6, 13 says. For this reason, talking about the spiritual warfare, talking about the, the, the danger of our adversary. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything or having done everything to take your stand. So a plea to pastors, a challenge to a congregation, and a promise for perseverance. I love this. Look at the, the last two verses in this passage, verses 10 and 11. We're not going to cover the, the salutations at the end. But he says, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself... Now listen, not some, not some flunky that's going to do this, right? Troy, this ain't, the, this ain't the helper. This ain't the assistant, associate, whatever. This is... God himself, Jesus himself. You hear that? He promises he'll do four things. He says he will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. So quickly, what's he going to do? He's going to do four things. Number one, he's going to restore. That word means to make perfect. It's easy to see that I'm not perfect yet, but I will be. I will be one day. 1 John 3, 2 says we're his children. And it says we know that when he appears, we will be like him. All of the things that I'm going through right now are forming me or conforming me to his image. But one day, I'm not going to just look like him. I'm not just going to sound like him. I'm going to be like him. I will know and be fully known. That day's coming, but until then... He is constantly restoring us. Even though we've got to suffer for a little while, even though we're going to have struggles, even though we're going to have battles, he is constantly restoring us. He has promised that he will. The second thing he said he'll do is establish us. That means to fix or to steadfastly set. Proverbs 10, 25, When the whirlwind passes, the wicked are no more, but the righteous are secure forever. What that basically means is if you want to imagine that all of, all of creation is existing, and then there's this one big, giant, God-sent, eternal tornado that sweeps across, and the only thing that's going to be left are the things that God has established, and that's the righteous. Not because of our good works, but because our faith in the one who has made it possible for us to be able to, to withstand whatever else is going to happen. He says he will establish us. The third thing he's going to do, he says this, he'll strengthen us. And that means to confirm in spiritual knowledge and power. Uh, when I read that, my mind immediately went to uh, my mother-in-law. Her, when she was alive, it was her favorite verse. And this is Paul recounting what Jesus had said to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Some of us seem to think that we can't help, uh, we can't do anything for the kingdom because we're struggling. We, we can't do anything for the kingdom because we're not at full strength or full power. Brother Kevin, I've got too much other stuff to do, and, and I've got bit, this pulling on me, that pulling on me. None of that stuff matters. What matters is your obedience. What matters is you submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When you submit to him and you are at your very weakest, that's where his strength is perfected. He doesn't need your strength, Wesley. Isn't that a good relief? He doesn't need my strength. He's not asking me to do something in the power of Kevin because he knows that's futile. That's wasteful. He's telling me to get out of the way and do it in his power. 
That's my prayer every Sunday when I'm sitting down over there. Every Sunday I pray something to this effect. Lord, if it's on me, this is going to be a flop. You have got to do something supernatural. I need you to get me out of the way. I need you to speak clearly from your word through your Holy Spirit. When we do that, we know he will because he promises here he will strengthen us. And the fourth thing he says, he will support us to ground or to settle. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 17 and 19. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then verse 11 explains how we can trust that he will do those four things that he just said he would do. How do we know he's going to do them? How do we trust that he's going to do them? This word dominion means ultimate power, all strength, dominance. It runs a very close second to my favorite word, which is sovereignty. I love that word. Of all the different things that you say about God, God is steadfast, awesome. God is love, super. God is righteous, amen. God is justice, hallelujah. None of that stuff makes a hill of beans difference if he's not sovereign. You get what I'm saying? Because he is sovereign, nothing can change the fact that he's steadfast and long-suffering and he's love and he's justice and he's righteous and he's pure and he's holy. He's all of that stuff and nobody can change it. Why? Because he is sovereign. Bless God. And then this word dominion ties to that word. Because he is sovereign, he has dominion over everything. And so when he says he's going to do these four things for you, you can take it to the bank. It's done. Because he has dominion forever. Forever means in perpetuity, endlessly, always. So here's what he's saying. We can trust that God will restore, establish, strengthen, and support us because he always has ultimate power over the entire universe. There's not an atom, there's not a molecule that doesn't bow at the command of the Lord God. There's not a star, a planet, a solar system, or a person who does not bow before the Lord. And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, that ought to be great solace. That ought to be great encouragement. So here's the obvious question I think would bring or should come to mind for everybody. All right, what do we do with all this information? You've given us this plea to pastors, a challenge to congregation, a promise for perseverance. Well, let me give it to you in three groups. All right. First, for pastors, for those of us who've been put in leadership positions, I'll even go that far. Reminds me of Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. Didn't think you'd hear that one, did you? With great power comes great responsibility. Anybody remember that? That's a cool line, isn't it? No, he ripped it off. Listen to what Jesus said. I told you we're going to keep coming back to what Jesus said. Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. So for leaders, understand that with great power comes great responsibility. When God has entrusted you with much, he expects much out of you. Now that means that I shouldn't have to come around poking and prodding on you. God's called me to be a shepherd, not a cattleman. Now sometimes I wish he would. I'd like to get a cattle prod out every once in a while. I'm trying to get somebody in line, you know. 
That's not what he's called me to be. He's called me to be a shepherd. So I shouldn't have to do that. For leaders, we ought, to, we ought to understand this command that we're given, that when God has blessed us with much, he's given us either financial wherewithal or just sway and influence on people. He's given us wisdom and insights to be able to teach, to train, to, to guide, to disciple. That when he's given us those things, he expects much out of that investment he's put in us. Secondly, for the church, I think this is really simple. I've kind of tried to boil it down to one sentence. What do we do with this? What do we do with this information? Here's what we do with this information. We live in humility while being wary of our enemy. We live in humility. Remember, I, I didn't say act humble or be humble. Live in humility. Make it a frame of mind. Make it a, a way of life. Live in humility while being wary of your enemy. Now listen, he's a whipped enemy, but don't think that he's a weak enemy. Give the devil his due. He's a powerful force, and without the Holy Spirit fighting for you, you ain't got a chance. Third, <clears throat> for pastors, for leaders, for the church, the third group, for everybody else. We, we live in a hopeless time. We live in a time of challenges and disappointments and discouragements. So if you don't know Christ... If, if this has not resonated with you, that, you're, that you belong to him, your only hope, your only hope to be restored, established, strengthened, and supported is to surrender to the lordship of Christ and trust in God's eternal sovereignty. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? You've heard me say it time and time again. I'll say it again. The gospel is important and it demands a response. Now what it doesn't demand is for me to stand up here and try to beg and plead and try to sell you a used car. That's not what I'm doing. But it does demand a response. And so if the Holy Spirit has been moving in your heart today, and maybe you're watching on, on Facebook or watching on YouTube, if the Holy Spirit has been moving in your heart today, this is a time for you to respond in obedience. You have one opportunity for instant obedience, and it's going to be right here. When I pray and say amen, that's your chance to be instantly obedient. So if the, if the Holy Spirit has prompted you and you feel like that conviction is on you, that you know you're lost, that you're not saved, you need to repent of your sins and trust Christ today. Don't put it off. Do it today. Maybe you've made a profession of faith, but you've drifted from that faith, and you need to rededicate your life to Christ and say, starting today, I'm going to be closer to Jesus than I've ever been. I'm going to put aside everything that's holding me back, and I'm going to pursue him. Maybe you need to surrender to the ministry. Maybe God's been calling you to the ministry. Maybe you need to surrender to missions. Maybe God has been prompting you to be a missionary and you've been running from it. Stop running. Hey, if you're going to run, run from the devil. Don't run from God. You can run from the devil and make some headway. You'll never outrun God. Maybe you've got issues with somebody in here. Maybe there's or somebody else, somebody outside of here, that there's conflict. You're holding grudges. You've got hatred in your heart for somebody. You need to let go of that. Those four things God's promised to do, he's not going to do those for you as long as you hold on to grudges and hatred. So whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart today, I'm begging you, I'm exhorting you, I'm pleading with you to turn to Christ. Let go of whatever it is and take hold of Christ. So I'm going to pray when I say amen, if any of those things, if you need to come up here and just talk, be, have prayer, 
make a profession of faith, whatever it is. When I say amen, that's your, your call to move right then, okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for your word, the truth, and the power in it. God, I pray that I've gotten out of the way of it, and it's been clear what you're saying to us through this passage. I pray, God, that we would let go of things that are hindering us, things that are slowing us down, keeping us from following you more closely. If there's anyone here that's lost, I pray they would confess their sins and come to Christ today. If any other decisions need to be made, God, that's your business with you and them. I pray that you would respond to them and that they would respond to you in faith and obedience because that's what you demand. Move in this service today, God, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.